Welcome to Indie Matters, a podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm Joey Lovato, the multimedia editor here at the Indie. We're back from our summer break, and before we get going, I'm here to tell you a little bit about the restructured format here at the podcast. We're going to break the podcast up into three segments. Segment one is going to be a few timely news stories from each week that we record with our radio partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Each week, one of us from the Indie goes in and reads a few stories we've written, and they're adapted for on-air broadcast. Those adapted stories can be heard during KUNR's scheduled news hour, but a few will also be heard on the podcast here each week. Segment two will either be an interview or a debrief with a reporter on a story that they've written or are working on. And segment three is a bit of a grab bag where you can hear a bunch of segment ideas that will rotate in and out from the third slot. From editor John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson going over something important from that week, to national news stories that we'd like to dive into a little bit more, to cutting to our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, to give us a lowdown on what's going on over there, to something fun in Nevada that we may not normally report on that we'd like to talk about, like cool hikes to do or movies to see. Let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear in that third segment. It's meant to be fun and interesting. With all that being said, let's jump into this week's episode. We're still working out a few details on segment one, so we're going to skip that one for this week, but we're going to jump right into editor John Ralston chatting with reporter Megan Meskely about all the 2020 events that happened this last week in Las Vegas. And then later, John and managing editor Elizabeth Thompson are going to sit down to chat about some of the tragic shootings that happened last week. I'm here with our reporter, Megan Messerly, who was our lead reporter in the 2020 election campaign and covered all the events this last weekend in Las Vegas. So, Megan, 19 candidates uh, came into Vegas uh, for the weekend, mainly centered around a, a forum put on by AFSCME, uh, the, the major public employee group in the country, been very influential here, helped get the collective bargaining for state employees passed. Was there anything that you thought that was said at the forum that went beyond anything the candidates have said before? In other words, was there news made at the forum, do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think there are a couple there are a couple different things. One, um, you and your your co-moderator, Amanda Turkle from The Huffington Post, um, pressed candidates on whether they would support a federal bill allowing public employee collective bargaining, right? And you got all of them to commit to that. So I think that in of itself, having them all on the record saying that was newsworthy in of itself. Um, You also press some of the candidates on what they're looking for in a labor secretary, right? Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren actually committed to having, you know, a labor leader. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, you know, was saying he would, you know, look for someone with strong labor principles, if not explicitly a labor leader, someone who's, who's going to take that into mind. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And I would say the third thing that jumped out to me was really this conversation about Medicare for all and healthcare, which we've seen has sort of been one of the focal points, I think, of the national conversation um, on the Democratic field between the progressive and the moderate candidates, right? You have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren supporting Medicare for all. You have former Vice President Joe Biden pushing for like an Obamacare 2.0. And I think we really saw that come out over the weekend in these conversations, um, specifically centered around right this idea of union healthcare and the fact that these unions have negotiated for these you know robust Cadillac plans. There's conversations about the Cadillac tax and Obamacare, which is a whole separate conversation. But essentially, these unions have negotiated you know really good health plans for their workers. Um, and so the question is, what happens when a Medicare for all system goes into effect and they lose those plans? And I think that the biggest point, and you pressed Senator Sanders. 
on this was, you know, are, are union workers going to have as good of a plan on your Medicare for all system as they do currently? And you got him to say absolutely that he would guarantee that they did. Uh, and I think that's that's sort of a, an interesting distinction in this debate over, OK, if you if you like your plan, you should be able to keep it versus, you know, just sort of axing the whole system and replacing it with something else. You know, it's interesting. You brought up a couple of things. I want to get back to the health care discussion in a second. But just journalistically, um, by, by the time we got to the fifth or sixth out of the 19 candidates and we started out by asking that question, which we decided to do to get them all on the record, you know, some people might think, why are you even asking them that? They're, they're just going to say yes, especially in front of that audience. But as I think I mentioned, uh, is that now if any of these people get elected right there on tape, they are committing to do something which is pretty dramatic, right, to create a federal mandate for collective bargaining. That's no small thing, right? No, it's not. And I think, I think, like you said, it's sort of, you know, in the moment, it feels like, oh, okay, I'm getting asked the same question, you know, but obviously, these candidates have their staffs watching in to see what, what questions are being asked. So, you know, by the time you get a couple candidates down the line, they know that question's coming. But like you said, it's important, obviously, for getting them on the record. And suddenly, you know, by the time you're your candidate 17 or 18, you don't really have an option to say, no, I, w- I wouldn't support this when, when everyone else has. So it's interesting you bring up the, the whole health care discussion, which is obviously a huge issue for everyone in the country, but but, but especially for these, these union workers. They're worried about it, too, for some of the reasons that uh, you brought up. And, and what really came out, I thought, during the, during the debate, not just with the front runners talking, but some of the others who were trying to get attention for themselves by attacking the front runners, specifically on Medicare for All, especially Sanders and Warren. It seems interesting to me, and you understand these issues much better than I do, is that it is a real question of forget about whether they're going to have a better plan or not. I don't, of course, Bernie Sanders is going to say yes, but we, again, he's on the record now uh, saying that for later on. But what does it look like for these folks and, and other people who have good health plans? Uh, uh, you know, like you have a good health plan, right, Megan? Excellent health yeah, plan. that's what I thought yep, you'd say. Yep. <laughs> but, so but, generous. But, but, but seriously, you know, people generally, uh, if they're employed, their employer is providing health insurance. They're probably pretty happy about it. Sure, they might not like certain things about it. How do you do that transition if Medicare for all becomes the law of the land? What does that look like, right? That's a real question. It is, yeah. And, and I think, understandably, it's scary for a lot of folks, you know, this thought of their employer-sponsored plans going away, right? Because, you know, those are, are generally the folks in the system for whom, you know, health insurance is working or kind of working. Um, it's it's not the folks who are on Medicaid or the folks who, um, you know, are self-employed and trying to figure out, okay, do I purchase plans on the exchange for small businesses? You know, these are some of the folks that, um, that health insurance is a little bit more complicated of a conversation. Think about the the, where you have to qualify to to get subsidies on the exchange and can you afford the plans because they're expensive and the instability in the market in place and all of that. And then those are the folks who Medicare for All really is going to help a lot. But yeah, you, there is this real question of, if you, I mean, if you like your plan, you're not going to be able to keep it, right? That's the point of a Medicare for All system is that everyone has the same coverage. Um, you know, there's this level playing field. So that means naturally people who have these really good plans are probably going to be brought down to sort of a, a median level, right? You and, and the folks who aren't 
aren't covered are going to be brought up to that level. But that's sort of the, the give and take in this conversation. It's interesting the way you phrased it there. If you like your plan, whether you're going to be able to keep it. I kept having going off in my head, and you probably have during this whole debate, the controversial, if you like your doctor, you can yeah. keep your doctor yeah. during, during yeah. Obamacare. No one's really going that far, as, as, as you just phrased it, right, to say if you like your plan, you can keep your plan because they just don't know, right? Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the overall, I think, interesting conversation with Medicare for All. And that's, I mean, what we, how we've seen it play out because it's a scary thing to say that, no, you can't keep your plan, right? Your plan is going away because that's, that's the whole point of a single-payer health insurance program. It's called single-payer because the government is the payer and they cover everyone. That's, that's, the, that's the point of it. But that's not necessarily the most popular thing to talk about because, again, you know, po- polling has shown that this, these plans are very popular with the people who have them. Uh, it was interesting, too, to see uh, Joe Biden really go in on the, the $30 trillion cost. I think he said $3 trillion a couple of times during one of the debates, but he said $30 trillion a couple of times uh, there. And, and I'm wondering how much that, that is going to scare people. Uh, what, what, is the, what is the polling generally showing on Medicare for All? Doesn't it show generally that the Democratic electorate supports Medicare for All? Yeah, so it's been trending upwards slowly over time. In fact, some Kaiser Family Foundation polling, not just looking at Democrats, but everyone shows like just over 50% support. So it's it's really been increasing year over year. But but it's, again, you know, you're talking about Medicare for all. When people hear that, they like it in a vacuum. But you start presenting them with arguments of, okay, Medicare for all, but we're getting rid of your existing employer-sponsored insurance. That's, that's when it becomes a more difficult conversation is, you know, in theory, a lot of people like the system. But when you start getting down into the nitty-gritties of what does that look like, I think it becomes a little bit more, you know, politically and personally complicated. Tell me a little about one other thing I want to talk about with the forum, uh, which was uh, something really strange for me, which is right in the middle of this forum, uh, uh, the carnage in, in El Paso occurred. And, and you know me uh, well enough now to know that I'm always attached to my phone. I'm always, but my phone was off during this whole thing. And so we, Amanda and I, really didn't know what was going on until I think Better O'Rourke was the first one to get up there. And of course, he's from El Paso and started talking about it. How do you think that changed the tenor of, of, of the forum? Because a lot of them, especially O'Rourke, and 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 at the end. And Mayor Pete just, he seemed really, to me, and, and you know, I, I take this at face, but he seemed really shaken by it, uh, uh, right? I mean, it changed the whole tenor of the second half of the forum, I thought. Definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I, I think it's only natural, right, that the that the conversation would go there. Like you were saying with with the news really coming out, that I think I think you're right. That was the first time at the forum the, the El Paso shooting was discussed is when, you know, Beto O'Rourke actually came out on stage. And, you know, you, we, we saw like candidates scrapping their one minute opening speeches to address what was going on and what was unfolding and you kind of have to you know, shift to, to what's happening. And, you know, there was still a conversation about labor, but I think it definitely um, changed the dynamic. And I think I, I was surprised too, like you were saying, with with, with Mayor P- Pete Buttigieg coming in and really spending a lot of time talking about um, gun violence, talking about, you know, his proposals and talking about white nationalism. I, th- I thought that was really interesting, you know, for, for that conversation to go there. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you can almost sense that, that as a mayor of a city, that 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 he was sensing what was happening uh, in El Paso and how that city was trying to uh, deal with that. Let's talk about outside the forum. Uh, what was really interesting, not that unexpected, is how many of the candidates used the fact that this forum was occurring to have events before, right after, and and, and a day or so after, right, including uh, events at churches, uh, town halls. Talk a little bit about what happened. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of a lot of events surrounding it. Some had events before. Like Elizabeth Warren had an event the Friday before. 
um, some people who appeared in the morning of the forum, like Joe Biden, went off to do afternoon events while the forum was still going on. He did um, an Asian American Pacific Islander dinner and another town hall. Um, the following day on Sunday, Bernie Sanders had a town hall. So we saw a lot of these ancillary events. I, I think like we were touching on before, the interesting thing for me is that obviously before the town hall, a lot of it was, you know, sort of more traditional stump speeches and things of that nature. Whereas after the town hall as El Paso um, and then on Sunday, the, the shooting in Dayton was on, unfolding. So much of the conversation was centered around, you know, gun violence and, and gun safety. Um, and I think, you know, just naturally a lot of the conversation shifted that way. And, you know, it, it was not lost on the presidential candidates that they were here in Las Vegas, um, you know, which, you know, almost two years ago had the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. So it was, um, I think, all the more relevant for them to be talking about that here. I guess I wonder where that goes, though. I mean, they were talking about it a lot and and they're still talking about it, even as we're recording uh, this on Thursday. Uh, the question is, is, is whether anything is going to be different this time. I mean, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of schools of thought that when you had an incident a few years ago when a bunch of little kids got killed, that they're not going to do anything then, whatever anything is. Uh, and, and if they're not going to do it after what happened here, uh, when are they going to do something? And I guess the question is, what is something and how that debate is going to go in the Democratic primary? Do you think we got any kind of window into that this weekend? It's hard to tell. I mean, there were there were calls immediately after, like Bernie Sanders called for, you know, the Senate to go back in. They're out right now for August recess. So there were, you know, some calls from some folks that the Senate should go back in to, you know, pass some sort of gun safety legislation. But like you were saying, we've seen this come up time and, and time again with these mass shootings. And there hasn't been a lot of change, right? You know, it's it's been, you know, basically two years since the shooting here and still not very much has changed. Like, I think we, we have this conversation where there's this initial frustration, you know, initial calls to action, um, and then nothing comes from us. I think, I mean, I think that's still the, the outstanding question is we don't know um, what's going to come for this from this and whether things will be any different this time. So let's let's talk about, let people know really what the, after all of this, what the state of play is in Nevada. We're, the, we're, we're, the, we're third state uh, to vote. Uh, it's, it's going to be important, I, I think in some ways maybe more important than ever in the sense that uh, candidates who are not going to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, going to hope to save their campaigns. Others are going to try to build on momentum from Iowa and New Hampshire here. Uh, there was a story in Politico this week by by Mark Caputo saying that, that you know, Warren uh, has the biggest footprint here. Uh, what's your sense of what's going on here so far? You're tracking this closer than anybody. Yeah, I mean, she, she definitely has, you know, a substantial operation here. She got on the ground, you know, really early. Obviously, she announced very early, so that allowed her to get established on the ground. Um, I think she had her first staff here in, in January um, and, and compare that to someone like uh, like we we're talking about Pete, Pete Buttigieg and he just announced his state, his Nevada state director. Right. And I even you know, I even asked him that question when I was sitting down with him over the weekend saying, you know, is is Nevada a priority for you? You just you just got a state director. You know, some some candidates have been here some, you know, six, seven times. You've only been here three times. Is it a focus? Um, you know, and he said, absolutely. You know, our campaign was slowing it off the ground, obviously 
you know, people didn't know who he was. He was this very quickly rising star and now is, you know, had the biggest fundraising quarter of any Democratic presidential candidate. So obviously he has the resources now to staff up in a state like Nevada, but contrast that with Warren or, you know, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who has about 40 people on his team on the ground here in Nevada as well, who are really, um, you know, putting in the groundwork early to establish these operations. I mean, it's kind of the the stuff that sounds a little bit more mundane. You know, you need a, you need a field program and you need to find your volunteers and outreach to them. But that's really what lays the groundwork when, you know, it comes to later this fall and this winter um, when you're actually trying to get folks out to caucus. Uh, let's wrap this up by talking about uh, uh, what the caucus is going to be like. It's going to going to be different than it was. The Democrats have a much different plan. They're, they're going to allow what they're calling telecaucusing. They're going to allow early voting. Uh, it's, it's going to be much different. And I think there's some sense out there like, is it going to work? Is it going to really expand the electorate? Do the campaigns really know what's going on? You think the Democrats are ready uh, for, for what's coming? Well, they're they're certainly trying to be ready. So <laughs> I, I think that's what remains to be seen, right? It's this, like you were saying, just a completely you know different process, these new elements, and they're still figuring out a lot of the finer points of this. Um, you know, so it's 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 not out of, you know, any uh, just trying to take their time, but th- these things are difficult and you have to figure out contracts with vendors and the logistical nitty gritties of this. And al- already the caucus process is um, sort of a complicated process. And so they're still figuring a lot of that out. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see as this process develops, how we see, you know, the communication between the state party here and the campaigns continue and then how that ultimately translates through on caucus day. And, and I probably shouldn't announce this here, but I want to wrap this up that the caucus is on February 22nd. And we've already made the decision at the Indy that you're the only one who's going to be covering it that day. You don't need any help. You can go to all the caucus locations yourself and you'll be able to provide us a report. We're we're launching our cloning program before (laughs) that, right? There you go. All right. Thanks, Megan. Thanks. All right, Elizabeth, let's uh, talk about the topic that is on, I think, everyone's mind in this country. Unfortunately, again, uh, in the wake of what happened in El Paso and, and Dayton, and that's Guns. Why does this keep happening in America? Why does it uh, happen so much more in America than in any other uh, country? And is there anything that any politician and, and can do about this? Uh, you're obviously never going to stop uh, the, these kinds of things from happening completely. But are there laws that make any sense? And I'm really interested in your perspective because uh, you, you are certainly, uh, uh, people know this, more conservative than I am in general, and you're a gun owner. Uh, um, and and so what, what's your perspective on all this? Yeah, you know, it's complicated and it's tricky. And I really try to just stay completely away from all the usual talking points because they've gotten us nowhere and they say nothing, actually. Um, So we obviously have a problem with too many mentally or emotionally unhinged people in this country having possession of or access to assault rifles and the like, along with the ammo um, and enough intelligence to plan and methodically carry out uh, these crimes. So we're talking about a specific type of emotional and mental illness, not not the debilitating type where you can't get off your couch, uh, but the type where you convince yourself in your own mind uh, that what you're doing has a purpose and that gunning down people in in public is going to serve some purpose and that you're you're going to be the deliverer uh, of that. Um, So 
there's a couple of things I, I think could happen. Uh, red flag laws uh, are, are one way. Now, even that's tricky because there are issues of due process. And just to explain what those are in case people don't know. Uh, in a nutshell, it means that um, if, a, a, if, a, if a human being or some agency uh, reports to a law enforcement agency or a court that they suspect that someone who is in possession of a firearm is capable of harming themselves or someone else, um, then that firearm could be at least temporarily seized from that person to prevent them from doing any harm while there was a process of evaluating the person's mental and emotional health. Uh, And then at that point, they would either get the gun back at some point or not, depending on what happened. Uh, I think I am mostly a supporter of those type of laws, especially because there have been a couple cases already where there was a mass shooting, many people died, and when we went back and looked at the record online, computers, social media, and talked to human beings who knew that person, there were signs that that person might do some harm or at least was not um, mentally, in, so we, shall we say, in possession of you know, their full capacity. So um, that's one way to do it. But that still relies on a human factor, which is that other human beings have to report that. And that can be very tricky business. I understand why people are nervous about that. You know, the bad blood, let's say, between two people, real easy to make an accusation. That person's unhinged. Um, Next thing you know, someone's getting their gun, you know, yanked out of their house. When and, and I don't want to gloss over that. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I don't want to gloss over what you referred to earlier, which is that there are serious due process concerns with red flag laws. No, I think it's I think it's the extreme to, 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 to say, oh, this is just like Minority Report, the Spielberg movie, and it's going to be like it's pre-crime. But on the other hand, you could have people uh, doing what, what you just uh, suggested. And so uh, I think actually probably red flag laws would prevent some of these things from happening. But it's – I know this is the cliche of cliches, but this is a slippery slope. Yeah. And this is this is why I think uh, – and I, this, is a, this is a terrible name for this group, by the way, gun rights advocates. Like, you know, what, what, is, what does that even what does that even mean? And this but this is where I think it devolves on that on that side is that every single thing that's proposed, whether it's something that's a little bit controversial, like red flag laws or something it's not like background checks. Uh, it's the nose under the tent. And the real reason that they're opposing it, wh- whether it's the NRA or some other groups or just people who own guns and fear uh, uh, it, that this is going to lead ultimately to gun confiscation, that's what they're afraid of, right? They, they, you do one of these, you do you do another one. And that that's generally how they gin up support for opposing this kind of stuff, right? Yeah, it is. But, you know, because red flag laws are new uh, in, in general and they haven't been put into effect, we haven't had a chance to see how they're, they're going to work. And I'm not, I'm not one of these people that assumes it's going to be a massive failure. Uh, it, it may well be imperfect, and, the, and it may well need to be tweaked. We, you know, uh, that wouldn't be a shocker if we needed to, uh, we had legislation that we decided, oh, it wasn't a great idea the way it was written. Let's tweak it a little bit and fix it up. So I, I'm fine when I say that I'm fine with it. I'm fine with having them in place now and seeing how it goes, trusting 
um, that there will be a professional mental health evaluation that will happen, um, that a sober and judicious individual uh, on a court bench will look at the situation, talk to all the witnesses, look at the mental health record, and make a determination for a period of days or weeks whether a certain individual should have a gun. And if anything goes heinously wrong in the process, I'm sure all the gun advocates will be right there screaming bloody murder um, to make sure that we get that fixed. So what I'm, I'm saying, I'm willing to see where that um, where that goes. I think we should. I'm a full supporter of background checks, uh, and I think they should be even more thorough than they already are. And I think more people should have to undergo them. How, how and, so more thorough? What do you um, mean? So Nevada had a great um, had had a pretty great system before people started tweaking it um, in recent years, which is that. They had uh, a state-based background check and a, the FBI, the federal background check, but not all states have that. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that instead of just checking the basics like your criminal record and your DMV record, um, we can we can look into other things like your more of your complete record. What have you ever been in trouble for anything? What is on um, your record? in terms of guns you already own uh, and purchases that you've made. So that's what I mean by more more thorough. Just the more information we have, the better chance we have of identifying uh, potential problems. And I, as a gun owner, I have no trouble taking any background check questionnaire or whatever. I have one more thing I want to say, but go, go ahead if you want to talk about no, that for cool. a We only have a couple of minutes left, so go ahead. So one suggestion that was made after this last couple of, of horrific shootings um, was about cash buybacks for assault rifles and that maybe states and the federal government should get in the business of offering substantial amounts of cash to get people to sell back their assault rifles and the ammo that goes with them to the, to the government uh, alongside laws that would ban um, the present and future sales of those same guns. Um, I would be completely open to seeing that happen. If people want to sell their guns to the government or anyone else, they should be able to do so. I think that might not be a bad way to get started on it. The problem is that the bad guys who are planning on doing something wrong aren't going to sell their gun back to the government. So it gets some guns out of some homes, and that's a good a good start. But it, it, it's not a it's not a panacea. It, it doesn't solve the whole problem. Well, let's talk about the language of the debate in, in, in the uh, minute or so that we have uh, left. And I've already talked about so, so, some, of, some of the phrases you used. The phrase that irritates me the most in this entire debate, Elizabeth, is the phrase law-abiding citizens, which is what the NRA and others often use. If you pass these laws, you're going to be infringing on the rights of law-abiding citizens. Now, while some of these people who have who have committed these horrific mass shootings, they are found to have had, again, no pun intended, triggering events in their past that you could have seen. A lot of them, up until the minute that they did this, we're law-abiding citizens. Yes. And so the question is, do you think that there's any chance that we can ever reframe this debate so these cliches that are used to rile people up are not used? Yeah, we can do it real easy. We infringe on the rights and privileges of law-abiding citizens mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. in this country and in this state with all kinds of laws. That, that is, that's an empty argument to me. And so you made a good point, and I, you know, and I, and I added to it, look— I think we have to accept the fact that the Second Amendment, while it guarantees the right to bear some kind of arms, um, in, in my mind, the biggest 
argument in favor of gun right ownership is is self-defense or sports. It's either self-defense or sports. Other than that, you know, do people really need to own an arsenal of assault rifles and enough ammunition to gun down 50 or 100 or a couple hundred people? Do private citizens really um, need that? And, and is, it, is their right to do that more important um, than the lives, uh, the hundreds of lives now that are being lost on an annual um, basis in this country? And then I'll just, I want to throw some uh, more fuel on the fire. We always talk about these mass shootings. More people in this country die by suicide with a gun or in an instance of a one-on-one shooting by a gun in an inner city um, than happen in these mass shootings. And, and we don't talk enough about those things. So guns and violence and, and mental health are a big, big problem. Um, we need to start trying some new things. We, we can't keep doing nothing. Well said. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we could uh, spend the last part of this podcast talking about such an innocuous topic that will not get any reaction. Thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> I look forward to all the hate mail. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We're glad to be back from our break and hope that you enjoyed this new format. Let us know what you think by emailing me, Joey Lovato, at joey at com. We would also really appreciate it if you could support us by rating and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any other podcast platform. If you can't find us on a podcast platform of your choice, email me and I'll get it sorted out. I'd like to thank John, Elizabeth, and Megan for being on the podcast this week, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week.